0: Episode 77, Patrick and Cyprian meet to revisit old topics with new insights. The team discussed the broad question of what is quantum computing,
1: applications in chemistry, and the search for the right modality. Welcome to Entangled Things, your quantum computing podcast, hosted by Patrick and Cyprian. Hey Cyprian, how you doing? Hey Patrick, I'm doing well.
0: I'm uh, really excited about this episode of Endangle Things thinks because this is
1: a special one. It is. Yeah. So we maybe it's late in the game, but we're going to ask the question of what is quantum computing. And we had this a long time ago, early on in the podcast, we covered this topic. It was very popular. And I think we've, you know, take two and a half years of extra experience and see if we can answer that question more succinctly. So when somebody like says so what do you do? And you mentioned quantum in, in it. How do you explain what quantum computing is?
0: Well, I would say at the uh, highest level, it's a fundamentally different way uh, of approaching uh, computing. The, uh, what we call classical computing today uh, basically exists in every single device that we, we use, whether it's our computers or our data centers or our phones our uh, IoT devices, sensors, and, and so forth, our
1: TVs, every,
0: our our every refrigerators, si- yeah, every single device that that does, even the kind of uh, most primitive type of compute uh, computing is a device that does classical computing. Uh, quantum computing is a way of uh, of doing this in a fundamentally different way. And maybe the one way to look at it is if we think of how our classical computing chips have evolved in in time, right? One of the directions that we took was to go smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where today we are talking about technologies like five nanometers for the transistors. Or even three. uh, Or even three. Now, there is a physical barrier there. uh, And the physical barrier is, uh, essentially, we cannot go significantly lower than that or even lower than that. That is because... Uh, quantum phenomena starts to appear at at those, those sizes. So right. this is basically the barrier. Once you create devices that work beyond that barrier, you move into the realm of quantum computing and the rules of the game are changed in right. a fundamental way.
1: But that's not to say, and we don't want to make sure we don't mislead anybody here, it's not to say that this is an evolution in classical. This is a revolution, a completely different paradigm for computing and we don't, we've both said over and over again quantum computers aren't faster computers. They're different. And classical computers will continue to evolve. And, and, and to some extent, instead of going down to smaller and smaller transistor sizes, we're go, we've already made the, the switch to more cores and more parallelism and things like that. But there's still things that a quantum computer can do easily at scale that even a medium-range quantum computer could do that a classical computer will never be able to do. And so when we had our early discussions, we talked about like memory, for example. In classical computing, um, there's there's lots of things that you can do, but you need more and more memory for, for some of these challenges. And sometimes the memory outstrips the potential of ever having that much memory. So for example, some of the numbers are so big in encryption breaking, for example, that you would need every atom on earth to be a, a memory bit and in order to do that and, and as everybody probably realized that's not kind of work that's not functional we can't we can't turn the earth into an abacus for a classical computer um and so it's beyond our reach in classical computing, and will always be beyond our reach at least and even if we do it's not going to help no and, and and we can only do it once it's only we only have one like planet earth to be we can only do that calculation once but with a with a sufficiently large quantum computer, certainly one with a million stable uh, logical qubits, we could, we could absolutely calculate our way through that and far, far beyond. And so, Feynman, Richard Feynman, when he posited, well, we eventually we're going to need quantum computers, he was talking about simulation of quantum systems, which has an incredible impact on, on, on physics, but also on chemistry. And one of the things that I, I like to note is that while medicine, finance, um, ev- almost every field of endeavor that humans have undertaken has benefited from the classical computing revolution and Moore's law of of you know, doubling of processing power every 18 months, so dramatically, chemistry's been kind of left behind. Chemistry's better. Chemistry's easier, but it hasn't had the revolution. Because we can't simulate the the, the the chemical reactions, but a quantum computer will be able to do that. And I think that's probably, it's not at the heart of everything we're doing with quantum computing right now, but I think it's at the heart of why it has to be a thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that was basically the, uh, or it's considered to be one of the starting points of the whole uh, thinking around quantum computing. It's uh, uh, one of the famous uh, uh, lectures that uh, were uh, given by, by Richard Feynman, where he essentially said, look, uh, trying to simulate uh, processes of Mother Nature uh, with classical computers uh, is not going to work. And why not start thinking about building computers that work the same way Mother Nature works, which means uh, work using quantum phenomena. Um, That was uh, one of the, I think, very early proposals uh, of, uh, hey, let's try to get the inspiration from quantum mechanics and try to build computers. And uh, I also know that at the the very same uh, same time there were other initiatives also uh, uh, going uh, on uh, along the same lines uh, with different variations, like for example people were looking at the complexity of simulating different types of uh, uh, different types of phenomena Uh, and uh, um, people were looking, for example, at uh, the cost of of simulating uh, many particle systems Mm -hmm. Um, people were looking, uh, and, and this is like circa 1981 1982, just to be Right. To be clear. Like right? in addition to Feynman, we had uh two other famous uh kind of uh early thinkers. Uh one of them was Yuri Manin. He was looking at the the cost of simulating many particle systems, and then Paul Benioff uh was the one looking at whether a quantum computer could operate without dissipation, right? uh, uh so those were like the very, very early, early stages. But it took some time to Uh, For those ideas to bear fruit, it was only, I think, 1985 when we've had uh, David Deutsch propose one of the first quantum algorithms that eventually led to the more complex ones.
1: Yeah. So people who are looking back, especially in another decade or so, are going to say, oh, well, they just figured out they needed these quantum computers and everyone agreed of what they should look like and how they should operate. That is the furthest thing from the truth. So we have... A, a bifurcation of this world, not only among modes, but among the type of quantum computing. So people will hear about adiabatic quantum computing and universal gate quantum computing. So adiabatic quantum computing is what D-Wave is doing. And they're by far the leader in that space. I can't even think of any other organizations that are following that path. And they very quickly developed a lot of qubits to do things that are sp- We'll call them specialized. They're kind of like um, optimization ap- applications are very well applied there. But you can't break encryption with it. You can't run um, some of the algorithms like the one you just mentioned. And, and of course, Shor's algorithm and Grover's algorithm. Those are some of the more famous cousins to jo- Yoza. Um, th- that's more the realm of universal quantum computing. So D-Wave got on the bandwagon really quick to build a you know fairly big quantum computer compared to all the others, but they accepted limitations. They And the limitations are adiabatic quantum computing is really good for optimization problems, which quite frankly, there's a lot of people who will pay and who are paying to use those systems to solve them in finance, in manufacturing, probably even in autonomous vehicles and, and things of that nature. But when you hear about D-Wave, I always think adiabatic, and I know what problem set they're they're dealing with. Almost everyone else, IBM, Rigetti, Quant- uh, Quantinium, um, I'm probably leaving out way too many, Google, uh, almost, the, gov- the nation states, they're focusing on universal gate quantum computing because those are the th- systems that will be able to do anything in the quantum computing space. They'd be able to do simulations. They'll be able to do material science. They'll be able to do cracking of encryption. They'll be able to, that's probably where the AI integration is going to be. And you and I have talked about AI a few times. What's the state of the art right now with AI and quantum? Are they a thing? Do they go out together? Are they, are they hoping to be together in the future? That's kind of where I think it is, but, but you're in the pulse of both of those.
0: Well, it's it's a very interesting uh, relationship between the two of them. Uh, one and it happens like on on two different fronts. That's that's what's amazing to me. One front is can we do machine learning uh, and ultimately AI with quantum? Uh, can we use quantum algorithms and can we use quantum computers to improve some of the uh, or to speed up some of the difficult solutions that we need to find with with machine learning, and uh, machine learning is full of, uh, say, optimization problems, right? Only think about, like, deep neural networks. Training a deep neural network essentially boils down to uh, solving over and over and over again optimization problems like the gradient descent, to give you an example. The big limitations there are related to uh, the, the high level of difficulty of Uh, mapping problems from the classical computing world of machine learning, uh, especially the ones with large amounts of data, to the space of quantum computing, where currently we don't really have the concept of storing data into quantum computers. So that's one interesting direction. The other one uh, is more along classical AI and machine learning, helping the development of, of quantum computing. And we've seen some very interesting developments uh, alongside the uh, newly like the new stars of the classical computing world which are the large language models uh, where people are starting to to use large language models, for example to help understand better con- quantum concepts to help even generate uh quantum computing source code like for instance Q- Q-sharp, uh, uh, source code and, and, and things like like that. So uh, it's interesting. And uh, I think there is a lot of potential in these large language models, uh, which come from the classical computing world, to help the development of, of quantum computing. Time will tell whether we will be able to show the quantum advantage in the fields of machine learning and artificial intelligence. That hasn't happened yet. Mm. There are many ideas out there. there. There are kind of many ways of exploring things. Uh, we'll, we'll have to wait and see.
1: But it's it's got great promise. And you've kind of touched on one of the keys, which is quantum computing doesn't replace classical computing; it augments. They are complementary. They are cousins. They are not descendants of each other. We we've learned a lot of lessons that we've probably taken some shortcuts in our development with quantum. In fact, we, we definitely have because we have the example of how classical computers developed. But when in the beginning of classical computing, there weren't transistors, it was vacuum tubes and other methodologies. Even Babbage's machine didn't even have any electronic parts. Um, and, and we're in that phase right now where we really don't know whether it's going to be trapped ions or superconducting, uh, qubits or, um, Nitrogen vacancies and diamonds or Mariana fermions as Microsoft's trying to do. And and we don't know what the modology, maybe many of those will exist for decades or maybe it will coalesce into one and kids 30, 40, 50 years from now won't know about the others because they will be ancient history. We don't know. We're really in early days. And the state of the art right now is that, you know, IBM, and we talked about this in a little, in a recent episode, they've got some chips and they've got a certain number of qubits, but what's really deceiving for people is there's two different qualities of qubits. There's physical qubits, which are full of errors, and sometimes people talk about millions to one errors to actual good calculations. And then there's logical qubits, which is the when you take, I don't know, 20 or 1,000 or I don't know how many it takes, but you take those physical qubits and you make them act like a single, perfect, uh, logical qubit. And one of the dangers is that as people start looking into this and learning about it, um, writers and, and bloggers and everyone else, and, and especially vendors, they, they miss the line between those two. They, they say qubit, qubits, 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 <clears throat> but they don't talk about whether they're talking about physical qubits and how that translates to logical and vice versa. And they usually use the one that makes them look the best. They usually talk about it in a way that makes them look good. And so you have to be careful about that as you as you start to learn about this stuff.
0: I think you're bringing up a, a great point, Patrick. And in fact, um, we don't know yet of a full problem, like of a quantum algorithm, quantum computing algorithm that is capable to solve a full problem, an entire problem, like one of the problems that are typically mentioned is the problem of factorization and the capability of quantum computing quantum computers to break down like RSA two thousand forty eight. Yeah. reality is the quantum computer is not capable of solving the factorization problem. The quantum computer is, is capable of providing an exponential speed up of one of the sub problems of factorization, which is the problem of order finding for a function, which is kind of makes that thing very difficult for the classical computers. So yeah. to your point, um, the world that we are heading to is a world where quantum computing will augment those areas in which classical computing uh, is not capable of, of solving the problems. And one of the, the directions that we also see is something that is called <clears throat> hybrid computing, where you have lots of, 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 of big vendors, especially the the platform vendors uh, who are attempting to uh, narrow the gap between the two environments, making sure that you the, the switch between classical computing code and quantum computing code is as fast and as efficient as possible. And if uh, our audience is asking like, yeah, but, but what's the big problem? Well, the big problem is that a classical computer runs at room temperature. Uh, most of today's quantum computers are running at something like 30, 40 millikelvin, which, uh, by comparison, is about a hundred times colder than the coldest places that we know uh, in in the universe uh, today. So, even sending signals like microwaves or light or whatever between the two systems produces a significant—should uh, I use a quote, a famous quote—disturbance in the force. Yeah. Uh, in in the world of quantum computers. So these initiatives of, of bridging the gap are very, very important because will allow us to kind of move in and out of classical and in and out of, of quantum with relative ease. And I think that will also open a whole new range of potential quantum computing algorithms and approaches
1: uh, and provide
0: potentially solutions to, to more problems.
1: And when we talk algorithms, we're talking universal quantum computing, again, not D-Wave. D-Wave is specializing in an area, adiabatic quantum computing, that doesn't really use algorithms the way we're talking about them. But almost every vendor that you're gonna look at is trying to solve this universal quantum computing problem. Um, you know, it's such a big landscape to understand most of the people who try to understand this and this is our what is quantum re, you know revisited episode so if if you're if you're trying to figure out how to explain it to someone and you already know about quantum or you this is your first time listening and you just wanted the most modern version you can there's two routes you can either pretend you're watching a superman movie and just forget about the fact that you question whether a person can fly and accept it suspend disbelief or you can go down the rabbit hole and try to figure out, you know, why you should accept that. In which case, there's a lot of physics that's going to be somewhat mind blowing. I like the physics. I I get into that, and I I think it's, but it 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 can be a distraction. It can actually get in the way of you learning what's going on in this space and how things are working. Um, we've talked to a few people who are trying to get like high school kids in Brooklyn to learn about quantum computing and to understand the underlying physics and the modality these, but we're starting to get to a point now where you don't have to understand all the nitty gritty details. It's kind of like, you don't have to know how a fuel injected car works to drive one. You have to know how a gas pedal works. You don't have to know how an electric car works and it still has a gas pedal. Isn't that a little weird because of these abstraction levels, right? Or does it have an electricity, a juice pedal? Um, so, if, if, if you have to decide where you want to jump in this time stream and we're getting to the point where abstractions by companies like Microsoft in the development world means that there are programmers out there who can use quantum and we're getting close. We're not there yet. I don't think we're getting close to the point where they don't need to understand the nitty gritty details of the physics. They don't have to understand the math to the level that you and I have been dragged through over the last decade. Um, and so I think that opens the horizons quite a bit. Microsoft's had a lot of big announcements. Now, there are other players in the language space. There's IBM with um, their, you know, Chasm, Q-A-S-M, basically quantum assembly language. Uh, Google has Cirque, and, and there's plenty of languages out there. But I do have to give it to Microsoft as they've made the developer ecosystem much easier than most with their C- with their Q-Sharp.
0: Well, Uh, Microsoft is a platform company, right? And uh, while they invest uh, a very large amount of of effort and consequently money into building quantum computers, they are essentially also investing into building the platform. And the platform means uh, programming languages, development environments, uh, an end-to-end stack, uh, learning resources, uh, and also capabilities around uh, estimation and simulation. That's that's another interesting thing that we see out there. And uh, obviously, Microsoft is not the only company doing that. There are, there are multiple companies doing that. Uh, on the front of simulations, right, uh, we, we see efforts in developing uh, simulators, which essentially use uh, classical computing capabilities to simulate the behavior of a limited number of qubits Um, and that is very very useful because it allows us to validate some of the quantum computing algorithms uh, of course in a limited manner but it still allows us to 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 validate uh, running like we were running on actual hardware and then the other thing is the estimators which is also important because as people are trying to develop new algorithms and are trying to imagine new approaches estimators are great because they will tell you with a relative, uh, relatively good precision what is the number of logical qubits that you would need to implement a specific uh, uh, layout of gates, or in other words, a specific algorithm. So these estimators are very good because you might have like a brilliant idea of an algorithm. And when you run it through the estimator, you end up finding that, hey, your brilliant algorithm will require 20 million qubits that we'll probably not have in for a very, very long time. So we will need to kind of revisit your idea and revisit your 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 approach. Mm. Uh, and these are things that, that that we see we see out there. I call them programming quantum computers without quantum computers. And uh, while it might seem funny, it is extremely important because it allows for advances in multiple areas while in parallel, uh, lots of uh, of the smartest people on this planet are racing towards building stable quantum computers.
1: Yeah. And the two biggest enemies of most of the quantum computers we've looked into is time and heat, two things that you can't avoid in this universe. Time marches on and heat is, is everywhere. Uh, you mentioned the Kelvin, So 30 millikelvin, it seems to be a sweet spot for a lot of different modalities. I know IBM operates around that temperature. I think... Um, quantinium, which used to be Honeywell is in that, that range. <clears throat> and so there are less than one degree Kelvin and a degree Kelvin is the same size as a degree Celsius. It just has a, a different zero point. Their zero is absolute zero and Celsius's zero point is 273 degrees Kelvin. The, 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 the vacuum of space is three Kelvin. Three degrees above absolute zero. And so we're talking about IBM and these other companies have built systems that are 0.3 Kelvin. It's colder than anything else in the world. So getting heat into there is a problem. And and it's just heat tries to travel. And time. These things don't, they degrade over time. They lose their coherence. Coherence time is something that you'll hear about as you dig into this. And so there's lots of things that are kind of fighting to destroy our ability to do this computing. So it's a race against time. It's a race against noise. And that's the thing that I think a lot of people miss when they first start learning about this. You can't set up a quantum system and then walk away and get a coffee and then come back because it goes away very quickly. And, and that's what we're still fighting with. We're not only fighting with how many qubits we're not only fighting with the error rates <clears throat> in those qubits we're fighting with, you know, time and energy transfer you know uh so so this is huge engineering problems that we're facing but we're making progress every year i mean we can't really predict when we'll have a million qubit computer we can't predict exactly when shore's algorithm will break rsa 2048 we've got some some predictions but we don't really know because it's breakthroughs so how do people keep informed? So let's say this is the first episode they listen to. I hope that's not true, but maybe it's the first of many. Um, and they they want to know more because we didn't fumble. We didn't tell we didn't scare them away with math and physics. So this podcast is one of your sources of information. There's plenty of course where I took the MIT courses. um what else, what would you advise somebody to try to continue to learn more about this? Is it news articles? Is there? a blog that you follow? What what are your sources of info?
0: Well, besides the obvious choice, which is listening to entangle things, you've mentioned I that agree. already. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would also highly encourage folks to uh, take a look at the, the learning materials that the big platform players are developing. You've mentioned uh, yeah. the, the likes of Microsoft and IBM and Google. Uh, for example, Microsoft has some very uh, nice things which are called the Azure Quantum katas, right? For those who are familiar with with martial arts, katas are repetitive exercises uh, that uh, will allow you to master the necessary skills uh, for martial arts, right? If you want to master the necessary skills for for programming quantum computers, like going through those exercises is extremely useful. But it's it's much more than that, right? Uh, all of them—Microsoft, uh, IBM, Google, and, and and many of the other players—like have some amazing uh, materials being developed yeah. that explain some of the concepts and and uh, and so forth. And then you've got uh, also people like Bob uh, Bob Cookie from from continuum, who has proposed a fundamentally different way of learning about about quantum in general, right? Through diagrams and pictures. So you can also take a look at at those types of, of, of approaches. But you were mentioning Patrick Heat, right? And and it's it's fun. Uh, uh, like the, the the fundamentals of physics tell tell us that, right? Heat is movement and, and movement is heat. And, and and that's why it is so difficult to to kind of confine those, those particles that we use as, as qubits. And then the other challenge, and I would like to uh, uh, add something to what you said, um, he, every time you start learning about quantum computing, you will uh, very quickly be introduced to the, to the uh, uh, fundamental kind of piece of, of the puzzle, which is the qubit who has like uh, an infinite number of potential states and so forth the real power of quantum computing comes where uh when you have multiple of these qubits uh and when i say multiple qubits i'm talking about hundreds uh, thousands hundreds of thousands and why not why not millions uh and the 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 immense challenge with 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 building those qubits actually there are two immense challenges one is uh keeping the coherence as you mentioned or in other words uh keeping those qubits stable at the same time for a long enough time so that computing can occur. So that's one, one challenge. But the other challenge that is uh, usually you, you learn about it later on in your journey in quantum computing is uh, pairing those qubits. Like you cannot build meaningful quantum computing algorithms unless you can implement what we call the two-qubit gates like for example the controlled not gate so when we're building these qubits um currently we cannot use any random pair of those qubits to do those two qubit operations because of the physical limitations of the of the chips and by the way this limitation is the one uh one of the most powerful limitations that prevents the build up of of more complex quantum computing uh, uh, chips. So just wanted to kind of emphasize the immense challenges that that folks are set to to solve and to a certain degree have already yeah. have already solved.
1: Yeah and, and in classical computing we don't have that. You you can use any byte on your hard drive for the same file and the next contiguous byte can be anywhere else on the hard drive. That's not the case with qubits. Qubits, like you said, have to be physically, they're physical Not logical, and that's that's where the rub comes in. And so, the the tech. I mean, there's different places to go in this world that you can get into the physics and work for one of the hardware manufacturers, or implement the uh, the the research and the discovery of these things, or you can learn about how to um, do a cubo on on D-Waves hardware and be an optimizer who works on problems with chemistry. We talked to um, a guest early on who talked about using cubos to. Uh, I think it was predict toxicity of a, of an element of a, of a chemical and that's an optimization problem, I guess. And, and there's also the financial, you know, things, um, there's a lot of places to go here. Development is a logical place to go. And that's when the languages start to take their place. Um, I still think we're a little ways away from not, from being in a position where you don't have to worry about the, the, the physics understand the physics to make good use of it, but it's coming. Um, So unfortunately there's physics and math in your future. I hopefully that's not a bad thing if you're really getting into this stuff, but if you want to just be informed, you want to just know what's coming. Um, If you watch the big players, watch the press releases by Quantinium, by, by Microsoft, by IBM, Rigetti. A lot of the nation states, uh, we were lucky to have uh, as guests the uh, the Finnish government when they announced their quantum computer uh, so much lo- so long ago, <clears throat> and and look for podcasts that you know talk about this stuff to stay in the loop because it's moving fast in some ways and it's moving glacially slow in other ways, and so it's one of those things where there's a lot of act. It's like a duck; it's very calm on the top, but there's lots of activity underneath with the feet moving uh, and you won't, don't want to miss it. So um, I think, I hope this has been a good um, interview with a revisiting of what is quantum computing. Why do we care about it? Let's, let's finish with that because we're, we're almost out of time. What does it give us that classical computing can't in, in, in real terms? The, what are some, what are some of the things you're looking forward to it delivering?
0: I think, yeah, that's, you've kind of read my mind, Patrick. I, I I wanted to to talk a little bit about that. The, the challenges are enormous. Uh, it's very difficult to build stable quantum computers. It's it's fairly difficult to imagine, design, and and implement algorithms in, in the space. But there is a reason why we are pursuing this, and we are pursuing uh, it like like with with a lot of resources being being involved because. The promise, the promise that that quantum computing ha- uh, holds is is extremely extremely compelling, right? Um, and without using big words, I I would say that the promise is of solving uh, some of our planet's biggest challenges in in, in areas like uh, agriculture, environment, health, energy, climate, material science, and and the the list is 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 quite long. And that's because for some of these problems, classical computing is simply, uh, challenged or incapable, right, of, of solving them as those systems, uh, uh, grow. The, the, typical example that we always provide, right, is the, um,
1: nitrogen uh, fixation, the, the,
0: mo- the, the molecule involved in the, the FEMOCO molecule involved in nitrogen fixation. Um, the way our industrial processes work today, uh, in, in building fertilizers when compared to the way nature works through that molecule is like comparing the, the, the Stone Age with, with landing on the moon. That's, that's, that's the, the magnitude of the, of the difference. Should we kind of crack the formula of, of nature's approach to fertilizers, we would probably be able to uh, have some unbelievable advances in that in that field. The reason why we can't do that is because like, we know the molecule but we cannot simulate its behavior to the point where we can uh, create, let's say, a synthetic version of, of it. And the reason why we cannot do that is because we don't have enough computing power, and we will never have if yeah. we stick to to classical computing. That's
1: that's said. the harsh reality. Yeah, but I it's it's posited that if we solve that problem, so we do with five atmospheres of pressure and 700 degrees of temperature what bacteria does at room temperature with sunlight and so if we can get to the point where it's less of a we can we can bring down that energy cost of creating fertilizers we might save as a billion barrels or two billion barrels of oil a year which is one percent of all humans energy usage and that's a big deal that that the other example
0: I, i like to give is is Besides the propulsion, one of the big reasons why we haven't landed on Mars yet, we haven't become a truly interplanetary civilization, is because we do lack the proper materials to protect the human body once it uh, goes outside of the protecting shroud of Earth's magnetic field, right? Which, by the way, the Moon is kind of inside that, so we're not facing that, that, that problem, right? Yeah. Being able to build those materials uh, would mean a huge step forward in our quest to conquer the space. Yeah. And again, it's maybe not because we want necessarily to land on Mars, but maybe because we want to be better prepared for the next kind of big asteroid that's yeah. it's, it's heading to Earth, which would essentially amount to the survival of the human civilization. Well,
1: as I've said, and let, let's let's leave it here. Um, all sci-fi, for the most part, is just the same people with better material science. <laughs> that's the only difference. Absolutely. They've got yeah. superconductors and lightsabers and and they've just <laughs> they've mastered so material science is literally the future. And this is our gateway to it. And that's what gets me excited about it. That's why I'm paying attention to it. Uh, as usual, great talking to you, Cyprian. I think we have to leave it there. And uh, I can't wait till another year or so goes by and we get to get to do this again on this particular topic. This
0: has been a real pleasure as always, Patrick.
1: Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.
0: Bye.